This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What up, Avi? Uh, we are joined by our dear friend, our comrade, Carly Ware, fellow public defender. Carly, hello. Hello. Welcome, Carly. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. You're a loyal member of the Aider Nation turned now co-host. I think I might be the number one fan. I, I'm not sure who else is in the running, but I would like to submit myself as number one fan. If you want to throw down the gauntlet, just add us on Twitter about whether your commitment is deeper. That means I will have to join Twitter first. <laughs> Maybe I'm com. the number two fan. <laughs> Carly's, she's the secretary of state of the Aider, of the Aider Nation. <laughs> it's quite an honor to be here with you both. We're uh, today going to sit and talk about a tragic shooting in the city of Sacramento, California, and the police shooting of Stefan Clark. And we're going to do the whole episode as a conversation on that subject. We'll uh, get started right now. Sajid, why don't you uh, tee it up for us? Yeah, of course. In terms of background, for those that don't know, Mr. Clark was a 21-year-old man in the city of Sacramento. Sacramento police are called to a report of uh, someone looking into or breaking into some cars. Police officers respond, a helicopter responds to the area and sees a person in a in the backyard of a residence um, that appears to jump over uh, the fence of a residence from one residence to another. The helicopter reports this information to patrol officers that are on scene who are on foot. This person is seen by the helicopter looking into a vehicle in a driveway. So the police officers that are on foot come to that driveway. They see this person. They tell him to stop and give him some commands. The person then runs into a backyard. The police officers pursue, and they kind of peek out from behind a wall and see this individual. Uh, One of the police officers, there's two police officers, it appears, says, gun. And then within a few seconds of him saying gun, they peer from behind this wall and they shoot Mr. Clark approximately 20 times. And then as he is laying there, they don't do anything as they wait for backup to arrive. Um, and they continue to yell commands at him. Ultimately, when they finally move from their position to his location, they find that he's dead and on his stomach and they find a white iPhone that presumably he had in his hand at the time of the incident. So that's the that's the backdrop. Avi, you've seen the video? Given what we do for a living and how our clients' interactions with police are day-to-day occurrences, that use of force issues are day-to-day occurrences, and just to be aware of the exercise of, of power on an individual person, I, I kind of feel obligated to watch it. The helicopter footage created this night vision viewing where you can just see these people's silhouettes and they kind of without their humanity just kind of their movements even as the guns are out it's like a video game it did look like a video game i didn't know that it was real as i watched it yeah it could have it could have easily been a recreation you know that's sort of the way it appeared and i didn't want to watch any of it in the past with the shooting walter scott i had to ask a friend to sit with me and watch it and then we just had to kind of feel terrible and and feel sick this one felt the same way. I wanted to turn turn it off. I wanted to turn my eyes away from it. I didn't want to hear what they had to say after the shooting. It was just awful. But I think that it's important to watch to see how these events, these investigations can escalate. Immediate reactions are important to me. You know, what's being said about the human being who's been shot? What's the primary focus? 
what kind of statements are being used and how those correspond to use of deadly force trainings. Right. So I did watch it. I, I encourage people to watch these videos, even though it, I, I encourage them to do it like not mindlessly. I think that you have to really kind of purposely like take time for yourself before watching these things. But I think it's important to understand what what we're doing, like how the system that we've set up for policing communities, including communities of color, actually plays out. Seeing the helicopter felt like just strange. Like if that was my neighborhood and there's a helicopter flying over, even if it's for a vehicle tampering, even if it's for an auto theft. Yeah. Uh, you know, or a check fraud or whatever it is, having a helicopter over really felt strange. I think my reflection that I can offer comes through um, a trial I just finished. I just finished a trial that took about two weeks and for three days we were in jury selection. Um, The trial has nothing to do with police use of force or um, anyone running from police, but it was the longest I've done over 25 jury trials at this point in my career as a public defender and this trial took the longest of any of them to pick a jury. We spent three full days speaking to people um, who were potential jurors and asking them questions about whether they could be fair and impartial and almost every juror, potential juror out of 90 that we had on the panel described an experience of their car having been broken into. Mm. It's like one of the most common crimes that people have been a victim of. Yeah, I've been a victim of it. Bunch I of have. Yeah. And it. I just wonder if you asked 90 people whether it's worth this type of police response, mm. if they could have the stuff back from that car or if they could have prevented the car break in. It, it really, to me, I know that the phrase Black Lives Matter is incredibly controversial right now in our society, but to me, it's almost the best way to demonstrate how it feels when it's your life or your community's life that is literally being traded for a car break-in. To me, there's a cheapness to it that is so sad. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you look at the way this this encounter escalated, I mean, so you have this report of a car break-in. Again, no no allegation of violence, no allegation of someone being in danger, no hostages, no threat of bodily injury to anybody. This person is then seen in a backyard. He's not attacking anybody from this helicopter's vantage point. There's no perception of a gun or a weapon in the person's hand from that helicopter point of view. Um, he's then seen looking into a, a vehicle. So again, no allegation of any sort of threat or danger. But before that, you can see on the on the police officers who are on foot, I, it appears that they have their guns drawn from the jump. It's already starting off on the wrong foot. And then, like you said, Avi, I mean, the, the cop saying gun immediately transformed this incident um, into a deadly encounter. There was it was there was going to be ultimately. Uh, likely no other outcome than what occurred. But isn't the running from the whoever was the original suspect running through backyards, assuming that indeed occurred, that has escalated the scenario in our society into a potentially deadly scenario for innocent people in that community because one person has run. The quickness to say gun. Like if he had to stop and think before and really deliberate and really say did i really see a gun um, before making that call then this whole situation would have played out a lot differently so i think there are there's this there's like these values that are um, at play when this incident transpires Um, and then obviously the combination 
was he more likely to have said gun because he was dealing with a black man in this particular neighborhood who's reported to have been wearing a hoodie? Uh, all of those layers to this particular story, too. Um, I don't know the answers. I mean, one thing I can say is I don't know what it's like to be a police officer. I do know that every job I've had has a workplace culture and that that workplace culture is very influential in my decision making. And it's difficult for anyone except for a police officer to comment on the workplace culture of police officers because we don't live in the daily reality of their job. But I do, I think that if the workplace culture changes to value the risk of force being used on the community um, and to balance that against the risk of force being used to the, you know, public safety professionals, that that would be a better outcome. I heard a NPR piece about vehicle uh, thefts or break-ins recently within the last couple of weeks and there was like a NPR reporter was doing a ride-along with some officers who um, saw a car being broken into in San Francisco and they decided not to pursue the suspect because it was so dangerous for public safety and instead there were some other plainclothes officers that were placed in a different part of the neighborhood and they were able to communicate with those officers through their radio channels and apprehend the vehicle without a high-speed chase. That is an example of excellent police work that solved a crime with public safety of everyone in mind and no use of force. Across the country, different police departments have come up with do not pursue policies under certain circumstances. And the idea is getting into a vehicle chase is dangerous. And so because it's dangerous, we should avoid doing it because it's a vehicle theft or it's a person with a warrant or it's a, you know, absconding person or whatever. And so we do the cost benefit analysis and the harm to potential people and the public isn't worth the harm of chasing the person right now. You'll catch up. You'll catch up with the person. By the same token, if you're in a situation which is a vehicle tampering where the person's now fleeing and running through backyards, and let's assume you have the helicopter up, just watch him on the helicopter. You know, like even like, you know, I was questioning the use of a helicopter earlier, but we're in the circumstance where you have some you surveillance. Have right. It's happening right now. Just maybe pursuing people with your guns out in other folks' backyards is going to lead to a danger to the community. Have you guys thought about whether we should be arming our police officers with guns at all? Like, I, it, it, you know, are there alternatives? Is, you know, are, is, are we inevitably setting ourselves up as a society when we arm our police officers to have the constant deaths of people like Stefan Clark and Philando Castile and countless others? Like, is, you know, is, that, is, is, is this essentially a cycle that we will continue to perpetuate as long as we arm our officers with lethal weapons? I don't know. I mean, I was in court yesterday um, in the hallway of a courthouse on a case that was being investigated by a police agency called the, um, it's the Medical Licensing Board. So the case involved a potential unlicensed practice of medicine. So people practicing medicine that weren't physicians. And there's an investigator that works on the case who is a law enforcement officer employed by the board of whoever licenses doctors and I had met the officer in other contexts before when he was in the courthouse yesterday he had a gun on his hip and it it actually like 
shocked me because I thought, why on earth would an investigator with the medical board who's investigating people who might possibly be practicing medicine without the proper legal license, why would he need a gun? Mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps there are many reasons I'm not aware of, but it's interesting to hear you say that today because I had never thought that before about police. I've never noticed the gun and thought how odd but with this particular officer i thought that's so strange well, again and that you're wearing it to court yeah and it goes back to that deep we're, we're used to this default right police officers in the line of duty they're in the line of fire therefore we are so used to the gun on their hip like it's just a, a part and parcel of how we operate um but then a part and parcel of how we've been operating is the death of stefan clark and all these people right I mean, just like we talked about with the criminal justice system i mean there there are some fundamentally problematic things with our criminal justice justice system at its roots um that we really need to rethink and so i feel like arming police officers is one of those things that we need to like fundamentally rethink i can't think of a scenario where that investigator is going to use that gun where it's going to result in a scenario where he's killing someone lawfully. I mean, again, I'm not aware of the context in which his daily life and work take place. I know that he executes search warrants probably, and that's very dangerous. I just found it interesting that I have encountered him during investigative activities in the case and never noticed a firearm. Perhaps he was wearing it in a concealed manner on those days, but I just thought it was... It just struck me that on the day that there's a court proceeding happening, that's when the gun is visible. Mm. It's like, what is it for? What is it really for? Yeah. Yeah. Did you think it was like a prop? No. I just thought that because he was dressed up for court, it was part of his, his uniform. uniform. Yeah. Right. On the other days, he was wearing like clothes you could buy at a store. The yeah. Other, the other thing, too, that I was thinking about is on, on another part of this case is the fact that they left Stefan Clark yeah. on the ground for several minutes. Let's assume if somehow these 20 shots didn't kill him. Let's say there was a moment in time where if immediate intervention could have saved this man. That didn't happen here because the police officers literally stood there and waited for several minutes before they even approached him. And again, it was based on the presumption that he was still armed and that he was still a danger to them, despite the fact that they had unloaded 20 rounds into into his it's body. It's terrible. At one point, uh, they say, let's get the less than lethal, or let's get the non-lethal. What that is, is it's a high-pressure beanbag gun. And their plan is to shoot him with the gun, with the high-pressure beanbags, to figure out if he's faking it, because they're really painful. I mean, that's the the humanity is not present. It's like poke him with a stick. Yeah, the, yeah, there is no humanity, you know, the, his his the importance of his life right. is given zero when you're talking about what kind of items can we have to shoot him with to figure out if he's faking his death or right. not. There's something toxic. There's something toxic. And I'll, about your, should we not have guns? There used to be a time where there were escalation of force policies. And if you didn't follow the escalation of force policy, there would be problems, right? So you use your fists and you use your stick and you use your pepper spray and you use your uh, taser. If you have tasers, you know, you use everything you can before going to deadly force. And there's been a change with kind of just general reasonableness that all bets are off, everything's situational. You can't be judged for anything that you do because of how we've interpreted the Fourth Amendment, how our courts interpret the Fourth Amendment. I think that short of taking guns away, it would be nice to return to some reasonable escalation of force policy. Yeah, it was really interesting to me because as as my initial instinct when I first watched the video, especially the, the ground footage, was it's really dark. 
And so my initial actual kind of empathy was with the police officers and like, and then, you know, I was like, oh, it's really dark. And then I was thinking, oh, they're on the ground, they're on the ground level. They're in pursuit of a civilian suspect. They're going into places unknown. They don't necessarily know what's behind the corner, what's behind the car. And so my initial kind of instincts were to empathize with the police officers, especially maybe from a defense attorney perspective too, you know, like, cause as we evaluate our own clients and what they're accused of and what's reasonable, what's not. And so my initial instincts were to, to kind of justify why the police officers acted as they did. It's dark, they're chasing a suspect. They don't necessarily know who they're dealing with. Uh, they're going, you know, going into, into a person's backyard. They find a suspect who runs from them. They see something perhaps in that person's hand. Again, there's an assumption of the, uh, they assume the worst under those circumstances. Their eyes kind of can play tricks on them. It's not unreasonable. But then I started to like rewind it back. I was like, what values or what presumptions are at play when the police officer first arrives on scene? And I start to kind of rewind my own thinking and how, how I've been conditioned to justify um, what these police officers are doing. Thinking to myself, how could have this scenario played out differently from the get-go, like from the beginning? Like um, if we had our values in, in, uh, in a different direction or if we had if we aligned them differently, if that makes sense. So does the police officer uh, arrive with their guns drawn? Like are they operating under certain beliefs that this is a potentially lethal scenario as opposed to a more community caretaking scenario? Like in all those all those types of values and how that could have changed the way this interaction started and how it ended. You know, there's the individual, does he have a gun, does he not have a gun, how does race play, there's the helicopter, there's the random shootout in somebody's backyard. We're thinking, kind of expanding our frame to the community harm that's involved of this method of policing leading to shootouts in somebody's backyard. Like, it's it's a completely unacceptable state of affairs that, you know, has to have some shift in it. So this obviously happened in the city of Sacramento. Um, I applaud the police department for putting out the video as quickly as they did. It's not like those scenarios. I think it was Laquan McDonald in Chicago where where we only saw the video like two years later um, and countless other videos that we the community is waiting to see. So uh, one thing is that this, the police departments and the authorities that be releasing the video, I think that was a, was a critical step. The second thing was obviously people took to the streets and they were protesting and rallying for, for in honor of Stefan Clark and for accountability of the police department. And in doing so, they essentially barricaded or shut down entry to uh, Sacramento Kings Atlanta Hawks game at the Golden One Center in Sacramento. And so what ultimately happened is that the authorities at the Kings Arena had to turn patrons away because of security and, and other logistical issues. So I think this NBA game went on with like 1,500 fans in the stands. I don't know how many more would have been at the Kings-Hawks game in the first place, but our boy, uh, Vivek Ranadive. Um, shout out. Shout out to Vivek. <laughs> our uh, fellow Brown brother took to the stage after the game uh, with the entire Kings uh, uh, staff and players uh, behind him and and recognized the moment and said essentially that what happened to Stefan Clark is unacceptable and that he and his organization and the team will uh, band together all, all as one to uh, ensure that this never happens again. And then thereafter, when the Celtics came into town to play the Kings, there was a recording of various players, including Jalen Brown from the Celtics and Zach Randolph and Vince Carter, all these players coming together from these two opposing teams 
uh, essentially saying to say Stefan's name and to say that there will be accountability um, and that things have to change. And so there's just been this um, groundswell in the in the NBA, at least in response to this um, in response to Stefan Clark's shooting. Did you have any um, reactions to it? This organization exists in a community and to say we're part of this community and we're all against what happened uh, to this person and to his life was was important. We often see people complain when protests inconvenience us, like when protests uh, shut down a freeway or shut down a street or make a certain location in- inaccessible. And so in this particular scenario, the, the people that were protesting and rallying made it difficult, if not impossible, for many patrons to get into this Kings game. Many people that had tickets to go in that had paid for it and obviously it affects the bottom line of the king's organization like they lost concession sales and they uh, lost whatever um, gate fees and things like that that could have been at issue but the kings as an organization they recognized that this was a moment bigger than the dollar the mighty dollar or like the, the money that they were missing out on in that day there was not one single complaint from the king's organization to say hey you know these these fans um, made it inconvenient for us or affected us, um, it, you know, and and we wished that they rallied or protest somewhere else. Instead, they recognized that this moment in time was bigger than any basketball game and bigger than uh, bigger than any money amount. So I really honor them. I think it was a real display of of priorities and prioritization. And I really think that the Kings set a great example to the rest of us to say, you know what, there are there are things that are bigger than basketball. There are things that are bigger than our conveniences and the lives of our fellow human beings are bigger than these other things. This moment and the ability to have this conversation demonstrates how important it is to have body camera and to have publicly accessible recordings. I, as a defense attorney, have sat at my computer and watched countless hours of body camera footage. Most of it is not very helpful, not very meaningful to the ultimate disputed facts. Shout out to defense attorneys and prosecutors who have sat at their desks and watched body cam footage to double check and balance what's going on on the streets. When it does help us resolve issues of fact, it's incredibly important. Think what the conversation would be about this incident without the body camera footage. Yeah. And and there's been some outcry now about the decision by the officers to shut off their audio. Well, one of the officers comes up to, I think, the sh- one of the, and says mute. Yeah. And, and, then, and then the sound goes mute. And we have to be really vigilant about misuse of body camera, about setting up policies that prevent officers at the scene to interfere with the purpose of having the body cameras. And there's sometimes ideas that, well, we need to have a strategic conversation or this needs to be a confidential communication that we're about to have for some good reason. And I think we need to check ourselves about that and just decide that we're going to take away control of the operation of the body camera. In Los Angeles, uh, they expanded their buffering time. So when you hit the button, it gives you two minutes of prior footage. Uh, in some places, you get 30, mi- 30 seconds. And so we have to think about how we control the u- actual human users of the body camera to check their kind of worst instinct. There, this would have been something that that uh, it would have been a tale as old as time, right, yeah. without the body camera. It's a credibility battle. And it would have fallen below the headlines just like so many countless other police shootings it's a credibility battle where one of the witnesses is has been killed 
right? right. So, I mean, it's a, right. it's a, you know, dead man tell no tales. So that's all we had for Eight or a Better. Carly, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me here. So everybody, thanks so much for listening uh, to Eight or a Better, and we will talk to you next time. Peace. Thanks. Bye.